Samuel chapter 22 today. David's on the run. He's fled from Saul. He fled to the Philistine cities. Not a good idea. Has to act crazy to get out of that predicament. Flees from Gath. And in verse 1 of chapter 22, we find out where he goes. It says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So if you go to the next slide, so that's his escape, the red line across to Gath, and then he goes back into the ship. No, uh, one, one more before, sorry. Um, the cave of Adullam, which is in that Shephelah area, coastal plains, and the mountainous regions in between is a low-lying plain. And if we go to the next slide, this is what one of the caves uh, in that area looks like. There is, there is not like a designated like the cave. It's um, a typography like this with a, a number of caves. But this would be the kind of thing that we can picture in our head. This is where David goes. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. Right? They're probably scared that, oh, if Saul is hunting David, then they're also going to hunt the next of kin. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gather around David. And David became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So this is interesting. This is the start of what will be, uh, come to be known as David's mighty men of valor. But they start off as this really uh, motley crew of disenfranchised Israelites who for different reasons, have said, we hate living under the kingdom of Saul. We want to live under a different kingdom, a different king, a different leadership. And they're, they're putting all their chips in with David. They know this might be, I mean, there's no going back after this. This is a mutiny against uh, King Saul. But they're saying, life has become unbearable. I don't want this life anymore. And I trust David to lead me out of it. I don't trust Saul. They're shifting their loyalties from Saul to David. In Saul, they see a deteriorating leader corrupted by envy and increasingly violence. And they're seeing David constantly fighting to do the right thing, honor God, and go to huge lengths to not use that same violent tactic against Saul, even when some might deem it justified. Verse 3, from there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. That's referring to the stronghold of the king in Moab. Moab was a nation and it's connected to the David story because David's great-grandmother was Ruth from the book of Ruth, who was a Moabite. So what David says is, my parents are now old, they're frail, I'm on the run, my family is gathered to me, they're not going to make it. Like whatever the next chapter looks like, they're not in a place where they could actually live life on the run. So he kind of calls in an ancestral favor and asks that they can be placed in Moab, which is on the south um, east side of um, uh, the Dead Sea and a different nation protected from Saul there. Now, I think that's amazing. It's this little interaction in David's life, but it speaks a tremendous amount to his character. In Exodus 20, God gives the Israelites 10 commandments, which are going to serve as the foundation of their laws as a nation. He's rescued them from Egypt. They're, they're a motley crew of 
slaves. They've been slaves for 400 years. It's all they've known. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But every nation needs laws on how they're called to live. But you're not going to be like the other nations because you're going to learn to live under God. You're going to learn to live God's way, and that will be a witness to the other nations around you. And the fifth commandment that God gives in that top ten, but the first one that deals with horizontal relationships. So the first four commands are about how Israel is to orient itself towards God. But the next are, the ones that follow are the ones about how do you interact with each other. And the first of those is, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And that's what we see David doing here. David is honoring his mother and father by providing safety and care and stability for them. But again, remember the context. He's doing this while his own life is tremendously unstable. He has no one, in a sense, providing care and safety for him. And I thought about that a lot because as I've took time over the last few years to care for my dying mother and heard stories from other people and know people who are doing that now, I wanted to take a moment to affirm those of you who have cared or are currently providing care and safety, stability for aging parents, And especially for those of you who are doing that while the circumstances of your own life do not make that care, that offering of care and stability easy. That is a deeply honorable thing to do. That is a deeply righteous thing to do. And God is pleased with your decision to step up. And he will bless you in many ways for it. And I know a little bit about the toll that it takes to provide that kind of care And we honor God in a powerful way when we honor our parents, especially during later years where there's frailty, where there's new levels of physical or even mental vulnerability. When we set aside our own interests and our own advancements and our own concerns and say, how do I honor and care for this person as they move into the final stages of their life? So thank you, and I want you to hear an affirmation from God, uh, hopefully in your inner person, that what you are doing is good and important and God will bless and honor you for it. Verse 5, The prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold in Moab. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. So now you kind of got this like Robin Hood, um, Sherwood Forest theme going on. But the larger picture which I hope some of us can relate to, or well, maybe all of us, is that there's just a lot of dislocation happening in David's life over a very short period of time. And that's a really (laughs) stressful thing to have to endure. Lots of changes. You know, they talk about how moving is like one of the top stressors, just that alone, right? And and the death of a, a loved one is another top stress. And, and, uh, you know, and that's not counting if you're on the run from people who want to take your life. David is just being ping-ponged all around. And there's this movement that he has to find in his own life with all this chaos to say, how do I trust God? What does it look like for me to trust God when the ground underneath my feet doesn't really feel very stable? But in verse 3, it's interesting. He says, He asked the king of Moab to take care of his parents until God reveals to him what God will do for me. 
So David still has a sense that God is with him, that God will be providing guidance, that God will eventually show him what he's going to do for him. But David's saying, I don't see that yet. But again, it's an amazing picture of faith where David's confidence in God isn't tied to the stability of his external circumstances. Again, it's tied to an intimacy with God, a, an understanding and confidence in God's faithfulness that doesn't make the instability around him easy. It just doesn't make it overwhelming. So that's the first scene. David in the cave gathers people, gets his family to safety, and now he sort of like continues to be on the run in this no man's land from Saul. The next scene, and we'll just go over this one quickly, is Saul kills the priests of Nob. So Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, we're always told Saul has the spear, Saul has the spear. The text always brings that to our attention, and that's to remind us that, oh, the first time we saw a spear in this book was Goliath, like the embodiment of evil. And now Saul is always wielding the spear, constant threat of violence and unstable violence at that, misdirected uh, violence. Saul's spear in hand seated under the tamarisk tree, on a hill in Gibeah with all his officials standing around him. Again, earlier on in chapter 14, we were introduced to Saul sitting under a different kind of tree, a pomegranate tree. But again, we're seeing here Saul is making life miserable for David, miserable for a lot of people. There's 400 men who flock to David, but he's just enjoying leisure. He's under trees, like chill. So he has this really corrupted, perverted view of power. He's not disturbed at all by the destruction that he's causing in other people's lives. He thinks it's justified, spear in hand, he's ready to strike. It's this picture of ungodly and almost like demonic ease and safety and security that he's living in while David is trying to scramble and make ends meet. Saul said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all your fields and vineyards? And he's talking about David. Will, will David make all of your commanders, will make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. Picking up on that pattern, me, me, me. You're supposed to be for me. You're supposed to be making life easier for me. You're supposed to be protecting me. Verse 9, but Doeg the Edomite, who is standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse, I saw David, come to him, Ahimelech, son of Ahitab at Nob. And Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and a sword and, and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And so Saul sends for the priest, Ahimelech, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, now listen here, son of Ahitab. Yes, he said. Saul said, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he may rebel against me and lie in wait for me as he does today. Did you catch the paranoia? Saul is picturing David lying in wait to ambush and attack him. David is literally on the run from Saul, but Saul's paranoia has reached a state where he's like, Are you, you're aiding this guy who's just waiting for a weak moment to come and kill me? 
Like you're seeing this descent into madness. Like totally, his perception of reality is completely uh, bent back upon his own narcissism and paranoia. Um, Ahimelech answered, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, and I, I just picture Saul moving closer to Ahimelech. He said, you will surely die, Ahimelech. You and your father's whole family. And then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew that he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. And then an amazing line. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. It's the first time we see kind of a public disobedience. Even the guards are like, Saul, dude, like you are not, you're not the boss of the priests. God's the boss of the priests. Like, I will not follow through on that. It's amazing. I mean, they take their life in their hands to do that. And then the king ordered Doag, the Edomite, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. And that day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, its sheep. So Saul unleashes the psychopath to do this, um, just raise the city of Nob. Not just the priests, but everyone connected to it. Now, to be fair, in Deuteronomy, there is something called a ban. And that is when an entire town or village turn themselves over to false gods, God might instruct the destruction of everything in that town. And the reason why at that time, remember, God is removing Israel from Egypt and all their idolatry and saying, you are going to learn to worship God correctly. And so in the, na in the nation's law were provisions for what happens if the leaders of a city or a certain, um, a certain level of momentum is gained in terms of idolatrous behavior and then a whole city becomes overrun and in a sense corrupts our faithfulness as a nation before God. And in those circumstances, in Deuteronomy 13, under very strict circumstances, God does allow for the possibility for a ban to happen. And that meant like a raising of that town to the ground if there's no repentance. But notice what Saul is doing here. The only condition in that ban was that the entire town went astray and turned to other gods. Nob just hadn't done what Saul wanted. And Saul says, kill them all. And so again, you're seeing this not-so-subtle picture to a Hebrew uh, reader, but it, it's maybe a, a, too subtle for us, but Saul is putting himself in the place of God. He's saying, this is my nation. Every town is to obey me. Every town is there to make my life better, to protect me, to advance my agenda. And if there's a group of people out there that think that there's an authority over me, 
that they can bypass my word to do, I'm going to teach them a lesson. So just it's a terrible, awful uh, scene here. A hint of good news in verse 20, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, escaped and he fled to join David. And he tells David what happened. And David says, when I was talking, um, he said that day, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul. And David says, I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family. David realizes, yeah, I, I, I kind of saw this coming. I didn't do anything. And he feels heartbroken about it. And he takes full responsibility for it. And he says to Abiathar, stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also, so you'll be safe with me. So David adds to his mighty men. So chapter 22 really ends on this dark note of, wow, like things are really turning, not just against David anymore, not just against, not, you know, David's not just on the run. A critical mass of Israelites are on the run, and now Saul has really tipped over into violent madness. It's a really scary time. Now, we'll see how that momentum moves into and through the next few chapters, but I want to go back to the first few chapters here because I think this is where the gold is as it relates to our current moment as a church. I want to focus on the first few verses, and I want you to note how the text actually reveals in broad, broad strokes the, the pattern that God uses to transform our lives. It's kind of all there, and you just have to parse it apart. And you see this pattern repeated again and again and again in Israel's story, and then what Jesus does with the disciples, what happens um, to the disciples after the Holy Spirit comes in them and acts, and in, in the growth of the early church. And that is, there's some kind of a new loss or death or dislocation which facilitates a new intimacy or union with God that then is reinforced by a repositioning in a new community and out of that new community comes a new mission and these are in broad uh, you know in broad categories the, the details might change a little bit but this is the way god transforms our lives individually in our marriages or across friendships as a church number one there's a new loss. There's a precipitating event. It's a death of something, the loss of something, a dislocation. Life as it was comes abruptly to an end. And you are no longer at home in Israel. You're no longer at home with the Philistines. You're on the run. You're trying to figure out what is next. I don't know what's coming. The loss is significant. And this is kind of like that death to self. It's death to life the way you knew it. And this almost always happens for people only on the back of a significant bottoming out of something in life. And the cave of uh, Abdullah is, uh, or Adullam is, is a symbol for not just like a hideout. Because in the ancient Near East, what were caves used for? Where was Jesus' body buried? in a cave. Caves are tombs. That's why, depending on your translation, when Jesus goes to confront the demon-possessed person in the tombs, it'll, different translations will say in the caves. This is, caves are where you sent people 
whose life's, lives were basically over. Like the mentally insane, the broken, hardened criminals. You go to a cave to die. That's why you go to a cave. Not to regroup, you go to a cave to die. And the symbolism here is pretty obvious. David's running out of options. He's dead in terms of worldly prospects. God has prospered him. He's, He's quite notable within Saul's entourage. And yet now all of that has been stripped away. And he's got to be fully trusting now that God will provide. God is the only one who David can rely on now. And great movements of God often emerge from experiencing this kind of dislocation or another D word that we don't hear often that I think is good is desolation. A real sense of, oh, my life as I knew it is over. Like this, I didn't, this isn't like a spiritual stub toe. This is, I actually don't know what the future looks like now. Now, in that place of darkness, in that place of dislocation, the second phase is often moved into where we are invited into a new kind of intimacy or union with God. All of the debris of our life gets stripped away, all the clutter, and it just becomes very much about us and God. And we seek God. And we learn to experience God as a refuge and a source of power and deliverance. Psalm 57 is written by David when he had fled from Saul into the cave. And the first two verses are just this. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. There's this openness, there's this vulnerability. David is now experiencing in a fresh way what it means to have God as your refuge. Because, let's just be honest, when David's in the palace working for Saul before all of this begins to go crazy, like there's a way that you trust God in a palace. And there's a way that, of course, you trust God when you're in a royal court, but trusting God looks a lot different when you're in a cave. Trusting God looks a lot different when you're in a tomb. There's kind of like different levels that the penny has to drop. And some of God's deepest work in my life have been in moments and seasons sometimes they're short, sometimes they're long, where he's placed me in a cave. And then in that time, brought me back to himself. Refocused me. And then what he also tends to do in our lives is relocate us within a new community, a new fellowship. David is stripped of everyone. He's by himself, and then his family comes, and then these 400 disenfranchised ragamuffins And these are people who are going to help David navigate this darkness. David actually isn't sent into the cave to be there alone forever. It's a place of meeting God, but then God strengthens David by bringing a new community around him. David's 400 were not the best and the brightest, but they did bear a similarity to the early church, to the earliest disciples of Jesus, often many of whom were completely cut off from their family of origin because they had placed their faith in Jesus, become a Christian, and that was a red line for their families in an honor-shame culture, so they're now kicked out. And they had to form a new community. And that's why Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says, 
not many of you were wise by human standards, meaning when you became a Christian, but God chose what is despised and the things that are not to reduce to nothing the things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. Paul says, remember who you were when you became a Christian. Was it, did God choose you because you were like rich and powerful and super talented and had all the connections and you're a mover and shaker? I mean, sometimes God saves people in that situation. It's not normative though. The normal pattern is God chooses the weak things in this world to shame the strong and the wise. And he puts them in new families and new communities. And that's kind of what the church is supposed to be. Which again is kind of sad because culturally there are all kind of forces, kinds of forces that have snaked their way through uh, Western culture that have, that have, where we've sometimes associate the church with the people who do have all, the, all their stuff together. And this is the place where of the people who are, whose lives are going up and to the right and whose marriages are amazing and, and, and are always like upbeat and happy and excited the church is called to be a new community where we gather to really get real with God, learn how to do that appropriately with each other, and then move into a new mission. Because you don't see it in this chapter yet, but in this cave, David is eventually going to establish a base of operations. And he's going to train and take this group of fugitives on the run and he's going to make, become a leader and he's going to command this, uh, th this micro army and he's going to advance and advance God's purposes through this new mission. And so when we're thinking about God's work in our lives, especially the, the really big stuff, I mean God's you know, you know, nudging and orchestrating in all kinds of ways that we're not aware of in our daily lives. I really believe that. And I think scripture speaks to that. But this is some of the pattern that we want to be looking for as it relates to us as individuals and as a church. There is a new loss. There's a new dislocation. It seems like there is no going back. And that forces us into a much deeper and more real relationship with God that isn't weighed down by all the clutter. And God brings around us people who aren't perfect, but they share that same hunger to say, I want to do life differently. I'm tired of living under the kingdom of Saul, the kingdoms of this world. I'm disenfranchised. I'm indebted on all kinds of levels. And I want to serve a king who knows how to lead me into truth, into life, into freedom, into flourishing. And there's no king like that when I look at the horizon of this world. And then that king, that new community, we have a new mission to bear witness to a different way to live. To say, you actually don't have to live under the authority of the souls of this world any longer. There's a true king. There's a better king. This is God's process of transformation. And if we resist God at any one of these four movements, we're just going to frustrate God's purposes in our own lives or in our church. We will not experience, I really believe this, I, I don't believe we will experience deep transformation in Christ at any level if we don't understand how to surrender and cooperate with God and learn how to do that. Maybe we don't understand it, but, but we, we need to want to learn how to do that. And I'm saying that as someone who has tried the different strategies <laughs> from experience. 
I've tried along all of these in different <laughs> times in my life to say, God, that, that's certainly a way we could do it, but what if we tried it this way? That would be a lot more comfortable, a lot easier, more efficient. I could see it would just be cleaner. And, you know, those are places where, it's, it's not that it's wrong to grapple with God and to, and to, in a sense, to negotiate and to pour out your heart and say, hey, if, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to drink this cup. If there's any other way, God, please. But we have to come to the end of it and say, but not my will, your will be done. And as a Christian, we have to live into that space that says, what is my life for anyways? Is my life... I mean, if your life is... If the vision for your life is that end up like Saul, rich, powerful, spear in hand, a life of ease and comfort lying under a tamarisk tree, then this is, this is anathema. This is the wrong direction. If you want to have a life like David, significance, purpose, deep intimacy with God, highs and lows, experiencing God in triumph and tragedy, carried through a real life of adventure and meaning and hope, not just for yourself, but for others. That's the process we've got we've to be willing to live into. And, and, and even if we're honest with ourselves, say, I don't know if I'm willing to go through some of this stuff, Jeff. That's okay, just say that to God. Say, God, I, I, I don't know if I'm willing, so help make me willing, please. Because if we resist God at any of these points, all that happens is we sort of just slow down and stagnate and stay stuck. And I don't want to be a Christian who has just uh, settled for where I am and now I'm working really hard to resist God's movement in my life and feeling no connection to God, no connection with others who are moving towards God and but just kind of putting on pretenses and going through the motions. And not f- totally giving up on faith, but not cooperating. Like it, it's just an awful place to be. I want to be fully surrendered. I want to be pursuing God wholeheartedly. This is a chapter in David's life when the known is gone, the known and the familiar is gone, new practices have to emerge, reliance on God has to be deepened because the pressures of the moment can't be held up under the shallowness of a f- of, of the faith of the past. The faith has to be deepened. There has to be a greater superstructure underneath. And I, I hope you hear that um, at both the individual level, but for us as a church. I'm not, this is not a prophetic word. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying I speak for God or anything. I, this, is, this is my humble opinion. And you know if you've tracked with me, I don't say stuff like this very often. I really, I really do think that dark days are coming ahead for our culture and our times. I think there are storm clouds gathering. I think a lot of people thought, oh, it's the pandemic. When the pandemic's over, we'll slide slowly back to normal. I really think it's just beginning. It's like an earthquake, and you're like, oh, the earthquake's over. Yeah, but there's a tsunami coming from off the coast that's going to get here in 18 hours. And how foolish would it, would it be to experience the earthquake and then say, we're safe. The tsunami has not come yet. It is coming. 
relationally, psychologically, financially. It's coming for all of us. And if we do not know how to get really real with God, individually and together, and if we don't know how to get real with each other and start pushing past some of the shallowness of our faith and our fellowship, then we are not going to be prepared for the tsunami coming our way. And our church will not be positioned to be a place of refuge for people in our culture who have firmly put all the chips of their life, they've gone all in on worldly security and gain. All in with trust in the powers that be. All in with their own economic prospects. We're all going to get hurt. Some people are going to get devastated. And I want our church to be ready to receive those people and to say, there's a new way to live. (laughs) Welcome to the cave. It's dark, but we're here together. God's doing something here and he's giving us a new mission. And part of that new mission is to say, there's going to be a time of clarity very, very soon where you're going to realize your hope and trust in the things of this world was grossly misplaced. Turn to Christ. Make him your refuge. And let's move forward together. If God is leading you into that cave, into that valley, please don't resist it. I'm trying not to resist it personally. That's part of what I'm doing over these next two months is as much as I can uh, in my stage of life with kids and marriage and life and responsibilities to get as alone with God as I can for extended periods and to say, God, prepare me for what is to come. And that's super difficult. It's super difficult to look at the road ahead and be like, there's not many markers that I can for sure say, oh yeah, September's going to look like that, 2023's going to look like that, then we'll get to here, and then we'll get to here, and I can get up on Sunday and give some pump-up vision that everyone can get falsely excited about. I I don't think God's going to reveal that to me. But I'm trying not to resist this. Because I know God can do something important when we allow our old way of life to die and then for God to work in that darkness. So trust that through this refinement, and I'm preaching to myself here, the stripping down that happens, this relocation, this new community, and this new assignment, trust that in all of it, God is with you and God is for you and God is leading us somewhere, but we've got to learn to make him our refuge. We've got to learn to make him our refuge. And if we do, he will prepare us for what is next. Let's pray. God, have mercy on us. Help elements of the story that we need to hear at different levels sink into our minds and hearts and help us to ruminate on them in the weeks ahead. Use this process in our lives as a church. It would be a tragedy if five years from now all the logistical things of the church were up and running and it was awesome and we were spiritually dead. We are just showing up on Sunday morning and just going through the motions. Use this time to refine us, to bring us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Closing song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's one of the themes that David celebrates again and again. I invite you to stand and we'll sing this together.